Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, a show about critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I am Michael, and with me is Cameron. Hello. <laughs> um, normally, by, by this point, uh, I've edited the first episode that we've recorded, and so I, I have a better sense for, for how I want to structure an introduction. Uh, but that's not happened yet. We're, we're uh, recording this pretty quickly after having recorded the previous episode. So uh, I guess we can just get right down to it. Like last time, what did we do? We talked about like our respective internet histories, uh, uh -huh. the, the history of Homestuck as, as kind of a thing, where it comes from. Uh, and then we talked about the first 47 pages of the comic. <laughs> Correct. Now, how many pages are in this comic? Aren't there like 10,000 pages? The, the estimate here is going to vary a little depending on whose numbers you are using, because some people try to take things like interactive flash content uh, and like sort of convert that into like the amount of words that you would have to read. Uh, and, you know, there are going to be uh, flashes in the future that uh, require us to read quite a bit. Um, but in terms of like pages on the the homestuck website uh it is over eight thousand pages mm -hmm. well this time we're going to uh do 49 through 68 so <laughs> i hope everyone's <laughs> excited no this time we're, we're getting into high gear we're kicking into gear we are reading as you said last time uh from here to the end of act one so we're gonna we're gonna get through it uh pretty quickly and i think we're gonna keep doing the same thing we've been doing uh talking about it talking about it as it happens and um kind of reflecting on it in, in a broad and a general sense um because there's not this is still in the mode of like a goof a goofy forum game mm -hmm. i would say yeah and uh one thing that i wanted to kind of pitch you here and i don't know if this will this if this would become a regular way of structuring the episodes or if it just works for this one maybe you don't think it works at all uh but if we kind of begin with me trying to run down uh pretty quickly not a five sentence summary but to summarize kind of everything that has happened in the chunk that we have read uh and then uh, you know, expanding on the parts that uh, we think should be expanded on, digging down into those things, or me sort of responding to questions you have about the ways that I have decided to summarize uh, particular bits of content, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's appropriate. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, if if you want, uh, just as also just to say, back in the first episode uh, at the top, I had mentioned uh, quite a few other Homestuck read-through podcasts, and those are working through with much more granularity uh, than probably we are going to be on the whole, I think. So if you do want something uh, that does get down into, like, we're going to read 80 pages at a time, um, there, there are folks who are doing that, who are doing kind of really uh, deep textural analysis analysis uh but we have certain abstractions at play in our particular work we have certain goals uh and covering a lot of material at, at a clip uh i think is going to be helpful for that so when we last left off john egbert uh it was his birthday uh, had decided to finally leave his room in order to get the disc for the install of a game called uh, Spurb. He has a beta disc for that. He put on a uh, disguise so he could hopefully maybe avoid his dad and then went out into the hallway outside of his room. 
What happens next is that uh, John goes downstairs. He walks around his house a lot. We see some interesting things about his house and get some interesting details uh, or implications about uh, his father and his life with his father. He fights his dad in the kitchen. They, they have a, a, an actual uh, RPG battle. Then John uh, gets his game. He goes upstairs. He meets another internet friend of his named Tentacle Therapist, uh, or who we'll call TT, uh, who explains a little bit about how the game works and how it uh, requires kind of two players. John installs the game. He also gets a present for his birthday from one of his other internet friends, TG, Turn Tech Godhead. And it is the prop bunny from the Nicolas Cage film Con Air. And John is thrilled by this. He also has a very brief conversation at some point with his fourth Internet friend, Gigi or Garden Gnostic. Uh, but she's kind of uh, some, something else seems to be going on with Gigi. We, we get the sense that, that things are happening kind of on, on her end that we'll learn more about later. Um, but anyway, the game starts. And how this works is that TT, who is uh, called John's server player, gets the ability to manipulate John's house as if it were a game of The Sims. And so like break down walls, uh, rebuild them, move furniture around, pull things like pull appliances out of the walls and things like that. Very, very strange. The the kids respond to the fact that this happens like pretty well. They seem kind of unsurprised that this has happened, but that's what's happening. That's what the game is. It's all very strange and obtuse, and they're kind of trying to figure it out. Eventually, they spawn or like place a game construct that releases a thing called a kernel sprite uh, that flashes and follows John around the house. John notices that there is there appears to be a meteor coming through the sky toward his house, like on a, you know, course to just like blow him the hell up. A maimed clown dummy gets thrown into the kernel sprite, uh, which means that it instead of just being like a thing that's flashing, like a strobing light following him around, it is now a strobing light with the face of a clown in one arm. And then John like works with TT uh, to, to kind of try to figure out what's going on puzzle-wise. Uh, at a certain point, we switch perspectives to TT herself, who lives somewhere else. Um, it's nighttime where she is. It's also raining, so she's kind of having internet trouble. She turns out to be a young woman named Rose Lalonde, who lives in a very interesting house. She gets to a place where she can reconnect to her internet and rejoin the game. Uh, just in time to help John figure out kind of the first Spurb puzzle, uh, which requires him to uh, do a bunch of weird game construct stuff, grow a big blue crystal tree, which then drops an apple, which John takes a bite of uh, just seconds before the meteor that is heading toward his house hits his house and blows everything up. And that is how Act One of Homestuck ends. Yep. Well, there's also the addendum. Well, yeah, there is an addendum. So uh, after after uh, the meteor hits, the curtains fall. Literally, if you have not read Homestuck, uh, when an act ends, uh, the 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 panel will kind of like 
pull back and some red curtains, uh, in this case red, uh, fall down from the sides of the panel and the curtains close. And then we get this brief mysterious section uh, that says years in the future, but not many. Uh, there is a big desert kind of view, uh, a ruined city clearly in the background and some uh, footsteps across the sand. And we have the little text caption, a wayward vagabond records or yeah, records a stuttering step in the sun bleached dust. Uh, this is a hyperlink that takes you out of kind of the main run of the comic. And when you click through, uh, you see this little figure um, bundled up in rags walking across the desert of. Uh, it is unclear what this figure is, but they do not appear to be human. Um, some some little uh, like creature uh, bundled up uh, and they find something beneath the sand, some white piece of construction. Uh, they come up, they brush the sand away and we see a faded Spurb logo. Um, so this is maybe apparently years in the future of Earth. And uh, something has happened. We saw that ruined city in the background and we see this uh, sort of non-human creature with kind of like pointy little fingers interacting with a piece of Spurb technology. So whatever has happened at the end of Act One, uh, it has had some extreme ramifications for the planet, presumably. Mm -hmm. At some point. At some point. Great. <laughs> I feel I feel like that might be the sign off. <laughs> Great. Yep. Cool. <laughs> uh, uh okay. Look, I don't really have any questions about this cuz I I don't think that this is the um we are still at the point where there are not really analytical questions I don't think to be asked about Homestuck. Mm -hmm. Um but there this it is constantly full of, you know, this this we talked about last episode. This kind of push pull right you know the audience asks a question or provides a prompt for uh hussy to then do stuff fill out the world a little bit right so when when the audience tells john to leave the room what's on the other side of that door is entirely of of hussy's imagination right like mm -hmm. we it, there there's no because of the adventure game kind of push pull um the 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 work of filling out the world is wholly separate from what the audience does. Mm -hmm. And so when John leaves this room and is immediately confronted by a giant mural of a clown, <laughs> or a giant painting, I guess, it's not a mural, it's a painting. It's deeply distressing to me. <laughs> it's um, so good. <laughs> yeah, because they're not clowns even, they're harlequins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which is what... John's dad is into. We learn, you know, very similar to the kind of big master shot kind of thing that happens of John's room that I talked about at length last time. We get a big kind of master shot of the living room, and it's basically the same idea, right? Here's a big space that is that operates as a kind of visual prompt for you to do a bunch of different stuff. And there are all kinds of choices made about this space that are absolutely bewildering. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, I, it's just what you're describing is that John steps out into the hallway and the two pieces of art on the hallway of this home, one, a black and white uh, stock photo 
of a kid who looks like Michael Sarah, and he, it does. It looks like Michael Sarah, and like the the uh, narrative, I think, comments on this, and I think even in Hussey's uh, author commentary, it was just like I was just really struck by how that looks like Michael Sarah wearing a beagle puss, which is like the the Groucho Marx uh, glasses and fake nose and mustache, which is what John is also wearing at this point. Yeah, I didn't ask this last time. Is a beagle puss is that is that the uh the homestuck term for this or is no. there a longer lineage of the um you know the Groucho Marx masks you know nose and mustache and, and glasses. Believe it or not that is actually what those are called. Okay, that's why I assume I, <laughs> I didn't know one way or the other. So, there's that like that's a piece of art on the wall of of this home and then beside it is and i'm pretty sure this looks like original uh hussy art actually i think is this like it, it, you talked about this last time um the house is very black and white uh but this is like just violently colored magenta bright blue uh bright green uh, a picture of just like sort of a prancing harlequin and then when John steps downstairs, there are more Harlequin and qu and clown paintings on the walls. Yeah, they're everywhere. There's like a collector's cabinet. And this is kind of what you were talking about last last time with the Santas, right? The mm -hmm. This is a, th a thing in American culture. Mhm. Mm that the <laughs> that people collect clown shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my grandmother was this way. She had so many I mean, she's still alive, but I don't think she she collects these clowns anymore. But when I was growing up, she had so many just like jesters and like 1950s clowns and like medieval clowns and all kinds of shit like that. It's awful. <sighs> like they are distressing enough when you encounter them in real life. And I remember specifically reading Homestuck, you know, uh, as a serial reader and this update dropping and like the moment that John goes downstairs and there are just all of these clowns everywhere. Like, so it is clear before this that John has some sort of weird tension with his dad. Uh, and then to find out that one of the sources of this tension <laughs> is that his dad is obsessed with clowns. <laughs> is like such a funny turn to me well because we learn in this in this uh uh episode i'll say this episode's content uh we learn a few different things about his dad john's dad john uh, mr egbert i guess <laughs> is fascinating for a million different reasons one he loves clowns and i thought for sure when we saw him he would be a clown but he's not he's mm -hmm. just like a, a a guy a faceless man uh, number two, he is obsessed with baking, mm -hmm. like absolutely obsessed with, ba and that's why there's cakes everywhere in this house. Yes. Uh, they're everywhere. There um, were two in John's bedroom cause it's his birthday. And then there's one mm -hmm. on the couch when he goes downstairs. Yeah. They're not in places where you would put a, a, a cake, by the way. They're like on the couch, right? Don't, don't, they're, uh, he smokes a pipe and he wears like a little hat. Mm-hmm. Little fedora. Uh, and then we learn in this in this section that he is a street performer mm -hmm. professionally mm -hmm. we also learn that john's mother is dead because she's she's cremated and she's on the mantelpiece here in this room or that's not his mother that's his grandmother oh i thought that was his mother i, I misread that mm -hmm. 
So we don't know. We don't know where John's mother is. No, we don't. Well, his grandmother was killed by a, a doctor or no, whatever, Colonel Sassaker's volume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, because we the, the Colonel Sassaker volume, if you haven't looked at or read Homestuck, is it is like a big book. Like it's a giant tome in in the, the in, in its representation. Uh, and it is strongly implied that she was she fell off a ladder and a copy of this book crushed her. Yeah. So this is the kind of thing I was talking about last time of you never really know what's going to come back, right? Like, obviously, if you're reading this all in a whack really quickly, and I imagine that I would assume based on people in the discord in particular, that when people start reading this, and they're actually going to finish it, they kind of blitz through it, it seems. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And it's really quick to read. I mean, I get why you're kind of clicking through it. And there's for most of these, especially early on, there's not a lot of text. And so you really can kind of go through it but it's the kind of thing where where it doesn't seem that odd maybe that colonel sassaker comes back so quickly because like oh obviously it does but it's the kind of like dense interconnection that's happening here his grandmother didn't just die Mm -hmm. his grandmother was killed and his grandmother was killed by a thing that we already know about Mm mm-hmm you know, it, it, I, I don't know. The, the word I used last time was density, right? But everything, I, I think, you know, you kind of got to abstract it out to some principles. His grandmother could have died from anything on in the universe. Mm-hmm. But she died by something that's already been mentioned in the comic. Mm-hmm. Which gives you the sense really early that all the pieces could matter. Mm-hmm. You know, in the, in the wire, all the pieces fit. Right. In the wire lingo, right? Like everything could come back in a particular kind of way. So I don't know. It's it's already setting up, even 50 panels in, this kind of dense connectivity of that will reward you as a viewer, reader, player, or whatever, for paying attention to all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's lore thinking mm-hmm. already. Yes. You know, it's the kind of lore imagination that we have that is so common amongst everything now. I mean, the Marvel Cinematic Universe contemporary disney star wars none of those things uh, uh, space jam of course none of those <laughs> things are thinkable in the year 2021 without the lore imaginary you know mm-hmm. the idea that this kind of lore book or story bible can define our experience with the thing and that that part of the mastery that you as a viewer can have over say star wars is by mastering all the individual little pieces and knowing how they all fit together being this kind of of uh 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 I was going to say crossword puzzle, but jigsaw puzzle, master manipulator, mm-hmm. um, who understands how everything goes together. I, th- when when that trend gets bucked, I think you see a lot of people getting very upset. I, you know, there are a lot of different reasons why people do or do not like the Last Jedi, but I think it is undeniable that part of what fuels the response to that in lots of different ways is that it was a film that said that your, your lore mastery of the Star Wars universe might just actually be useless. Mm-hmm. Um, it might not matter all that much. Um, uh, to the point where uh, th- things that swerved in that film had to be, resp- you know, Ryan Johnson had to get on Twitter and be like, well, actually, some of the things that I talked about there are in some of the lore books, mm-hmm. nerds. You know, it it became, weirdly enough, this kind of competition, even with the, the director and the fans, of who understood the depths of the lore better than the yes. other. Um, uh, which is fascinating. But that's all to say, Homestuck, Homestuck made this world. Homestuck is here in 2009. Yes. Um, it's in the lore imaginary. And like I said mm-hmm. last time, 
lost already got here in some ways but but i think that we we can't we can't discorrelate all these things from from one another they're all part of the same cultural melange Mm -hmm. yeah and it's going to be like you're zeroing on on something that is going to develop in interesting ways throughout the comic i will say Hmm. Uh, the other thing that of course happens is that because Nana's ashes are in an urn on the mantelpiece, they get knocked over because as, uh, Hussey says in the commentary, uh, when you introduce some ashes in an urn, like it is the law of comedy that those ashes are going to be knocked over. So that happens. <laughs> uh, John very badly puts them back. Uh, he, then, I mean, this is like when we have our first conversation with tentacle therapist or TT, um, or I guess actually I've been trying to like not use these characters names before they're named, but I already said her name. It's Rose. Uh, what did mm-hmm. you think of this introduction, especially compared to, uh, TG or turn tech Godhead? Uh, she, I, again, this is characterization, right? It, it's interesting what you were talking about of like editing uh, a real chat log. Is this an edited chat log? No. So here is another thing from the commentary. Hussey says, uh, their original plan was to, uh, write these chat logs quickly uh, because they had like, and and this is very funny because I don't think, I don't know, maybe people probably still do this, but I did this 1000% in this time as someone who was living online. I had saved chat logs for when my friends and I would have really funny conversations or like, you know, do extended bits together. Uh, And so Hussey's kind of initial plan was, oh, I can write this really quickly if I just like take all of these chat logs that I have and edit them to be relevant to, uh, you know, the situation in the story. And uh, what they say is that uh, this turned out to not be true. It turns out you have to edit uh, chat logs a lot in order to make them relevant to a fictional story that you're making up. Uh, And so it's only that first chat log and then one that's going to happen later uh, that are actually based on real ones. And I think the others are just, you know, kind of, you know, Hussey's Hussey's imagination. And so uh, to your point about characterization, uh, I think that what this conversation with uh, Rose shows is that that ability to characterize for Hussey is not limited to. Uh, things that they're pulling in that have already been written and they're just editing them. Uh, they do, in fact, I think, have that sense of voice and, and character uh, very, very strongly. Yeah, and in color, right? Uh-huh. Being, um, you know, uh, Rose's chat being in purple, like, sets a tone. And when you see Rose eventually, right, to find out she's like a, an a, like an East Coast goth mm-hmm. <laughs> who, like, likes horror and, like, very much a like a type all these people are like archetypical nerds i would say right um and and she's a very particular kind of nerd of of which i know many and and weirdly enough is the kind of archetypical nerd who after kind of the i would say after 2009 kind of became like ascendant in the world which is like Especially like when Tumblr comes along, mm-hmm. which is like the person who's into niche horror and uh, Rose really has this kind of vibe of of what I would say kind of emerges later uh, on in kind of like the Tumblr fandom space of like the person who at one point might have really been into Hot Topic and like the Nightmare Before Christmas mm-hmm. and has moved to the next stage, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Which is like. Lovecraft and like weird horror writers from the 1950s and like B movies and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that definitely is like the kind of vibe of it. 
uh, of her as a character and kind of the aesthetic space that she occupies, especially once we see her room. But even if we just we just see it here, right? Um, the the text is you know John Egbert is like no punctuation or actually uh, just periods. Weirdly enough, for the most part, very Cormac McCarthy of, mm-hmm. of John Egbert, commas and periods all you need. Uh, but uh, you know he's just like John Egbert's like banging out words, no capitalization. All of Rose's stuff is grammatically correct. Mm-hmm. And it has this kind of like adult tone to it. Like I'm putting on a little bit of, of uh, seriousness here. Um, I, I don't quite, I, I don't have the language to talk about what the language is. Well, um, she, but she's certainly a person. She's prolix, right? When she doesn't need to be. She's wor- She's the sort of person who would use a word like prolix. Uh Right. She she uh, uses more words than she needs to. The first thing she says is, uh, I understand you have recently come into possession of the beta release of, quote, the game of the year, unquote, as featured in respectable periodicals such as Game Bro magazine. Uh, and not because uh, there, there's an archness to her speech. Uh, she yeah. is performing that and she knows that it's kind of a little bit of a performance and she wants you to know that she's performing that archness. There's a distance between uh, kind of her text and kind of her like Rose herself. Yeah, there's like an ironic literariness to it. Mm-hmm. And I and I think until you meet Rose and you find out that her house is similarly plastered in <laughs> in, in like goofy pop culture, right? Where where uh, John is, uh, his whole house is covered in in clowns, uh, harlequins. Hers is uh, in wizards, uh-huh. like fantasy wizards that her her mother collects and to just piss her off. It seems like, or that's what she believes. Um, that she's like responding to that in the same way that like. John seems to be responding to his dad. Um, how old is Hussey when they're making this? Uh, like late twenties. Uh, yeah, Hussey was born in nineteen seventy nine. So this this is a this is a che- I guess I haven't thought about this before. This is a text made by a Gen Xer mm-hmm. that's really important to millennials. Yeah. That is interesting. Which I guess is most things that are important to millennials. They're probably <laughs> mostly made by Gen Xers. I guess yeah. it's not shocking, but I guess we, like the Hussey is not part of an age group for who this is such a massive cultural phenomenon. Yeah. No, it's interesting. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, like 30 years old, uh, and then latches on, or not really latches onto this, but like does this, and it is huge. I mean huge for people like my age and predominantly younger i actually you know i i'm fairly aware that i skew old in terms of like homestuck fan um and i think also a lot of people who were of my cohort or a little bit older than me uh there is there will come a point when a lot of these people jump the homestuck ship uh and of course we'll, we'll talk about that when it happens you know you are right that there is something generationally very interesting here yeah, yeah. The the thing that I'm thinking about is that when I really first got to know that there were people who were huge into Homestuck, I mean, I knew that it was an online phenomenon, but uh, obviously, like, when Tumblr comes along and kind of gets big as a platform, I see a lot of it on there, and I don't understand any of it. So, you know, and that's not really in the circuit of stuff that I'm following. Um, so, like, that's happening. 
But then when I start going to like video game events and being around more video game people in real life, you know, for the most part in college, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to cons or anything like that. So it was like right after college, kind of early grad school, I was really getting involved in games and game development and that kind of stuff. And that's when I really started to meet people who were into Homestuck and they were all five years younger than I, you know, than I was at that time. So I'm like 23. 324 somewhere in there and those people that i'm meeting who are into it they're like they're 20 21 that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um and and so i have like a really strong association with that age group and yeah that's i i i agree of the people who i know who are way into homestuck you were um you know you skew older in that regard for sure um but i don't know if that means that well i guess weirdly enough a lot of the people that i'm aware of who are excited for example about the show they tend to be, you know, your age, our age, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. um, it seems like it has a, a the way that Homestuck spreads and who it touches and, and how it interacts with people online is um, maybe my imaginary of what that is is different from the reality of it. But all to go back to Rose and to say, I yes, I think you're right that that Hussey has a really strong understanding of characterization and how people talk to each other on the Internet mm-hmm. um, and what that says about them. Whether that says about them in the real world or not, I think something that's really interesting here is that for the most part, at least as far as I've read so far, the way people talk to each other in chat logs is who they are in the quote unquote physical body or the real world of who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Homestuck kind of presents this fantasy that everyone is, in fact, who they are online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, John Egbert is this guy. Uh, uh, Rose is this this girl, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, which is not true for the real world, right? Right, right, right. No, it's a... Uh... I mean, I remember like the first times I started meeting friends from online in person and having that experience of realizing like, oh, you are and are not the person that I know from IRC. Like I can hear your IRC voice in your voice, but you also talk about other things or you have some other kind of, you know, bearing or demeanor that just doesn't come through via text and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a fascinating kind of move, uh, you know, a difference from now, right? Like, I don't know, maybe I sound exactly, I think you, for the most part, you know, because we only knew each other through text to begin with, right? We were, yeah, but yeah, so, you know, we only knew each other through text, right? And when we talked to each other for for the first time, um, you know, like we talked on the phone and then we started doing podcasty stuff or whatever, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is this person, Mm -hmm. you know, like I, I, I didn't think there was a strong uh, difference and, and and of course for the time now we're in such an interesting spot where I think more than ever before people who uh, you only know through text say on social media or something like that you are more likely now than ever to like know what they look like mm-hmm. and know what they sound like probably because we're pretty free most people in the world or lots of people I should say maybe not most but most people who are in online spaces pretty freely share their voices or video or their faces or whatever on various social media platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there are very few people who I kind of keep up with their work in a broad sense who I don't know what they look like and kind of what they sound like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether they've been on a podcast or whether they've like, you know, sh- shot some weird video on their phone of like something weird that happened in their life and they're narrating over it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know what the vast majority of people who I interact with on the internet, internet look and sound like. That was not the case before social media, even six, seven years ago. Yeah. Um, you you could have huge years long, uh, you know, uh, social relationships with people and never know anything about what they look or sound like. 
Yeah, yeah. I my friends uh, who I was making like my my aim friends, like people that I was meeting online who were, you know, my age, uh, I knew them for years before either of us knew what the other looked like because you didn't have digital cameras. Like if you wanted to show someone a pic, like, I mean, digital cameras existed, obviously, but it wasn't like a common piece of consumer electronics. Or if you wanted to buy one, they were expensive. Cheap ones didn't exist. Uh, so if you wanted to show someone a picture, it was more likely that you would have like a physical, like printed photo that you got from, you know, the developer or whatever. And you would have to then scan that uh, into the computer. Uh, mm -hmm. So like. It was just a lot of work. And then also, uh, you know, early on in Internet culture, and I don't think that this is necessarily a bad rule uh, even now, uh, but like, you know, I came onto the Internet at a time where you never told anyone your real name. Don't tell people who you really are on the Internet because you don't know who's out there and who's going to track you down and, and you know, do all, all sorts of horrible things, especially if you're a child online, obviously. Um but that doesn't stop people from letting me, you know, spend five hours online uh, a day or whatever. Uh, so, but, but I just also, do it anonymously. Yeah. But yeah, I was going to say like I was online, but I was, and people knew that I was like a 12 year old boy or whatever. Uh, but I wasn't telling people my real name. Like I, I went by a Nick, right? Like people shortened mm -hmm. my handle into a nickname uh, and, and that sort of thing. But that's all to say, if you're experiencing this in 2021, uh, it might not be, I don't know. I just don't know if you didn't live through it or you didn't have experiences on that version of the internet, you know, from 20 years ago, mm -hmm. basically, uh, then, then I think some of Homestuck, uh, I don't know, might make more or less sense to you. And I don't know, maybe some people like they have the experiences of being like on Twitter and discord wholly anonymously or, or something like that. And this is exactly how they experience the world. And, and I mean, there are plenty of people who, you know, I chat with regularly on the discord, um, who, uh, you know, who participate all the time and I have no idea what they sound like and definitely don't know what they look like, but I know what a lot of people sound like cause they're in the voice channels and they do things like that. So, um, I don't know. That's all to say that, that it's from a different moment of internet culture. And this really made me think about that mm -hmm. while uh, doing it. Um, why does John Egbert's father not understand him? I can't tell you that. Because, like, John Egbert gets his birthday gift from his father. Mm -hmm. His very supportive father, by the way. Mm -hmm. He like, leaves that... these, like, uh, notes all around the house talking about how proud he is of John. Mm -hmm. uh, Dad's a good guy. Mm -hmm. But he buys John for his birthday this massive clown. Uh-huh. <laughs> this giant clown like, doll. Giant clown doll. And does not seem to know that John hates these clowns. Mm -hmm. what's going on with that i mean it's an interesting point of tension it's a mystery that i think we're going to have to solve it, is it so <laughs> is it solvable oh yes oh yes oh, okay this is this is a thing that uh and i mean this is kind of a homestuck problem right is that you never know when something is showing up because it's a genuine like uh mystery that will be plot relevant or developed in some way or if it's just like uh you know, Andrew Hussey thinks it's extremely funny to imagine this kid who hates clowns with a very supportive father who does not understand why his son hates clowns so much. 
Yeah, and doesn't doesn't seem to like understand his son at all. Yeah, right? and just like weirdly absent. There's a kind of peanutsy thing going on here, mm-hmm. where like the, the, it matters when the father's around and doesn't matter when he's not around. Well, but it's extremely uh, important that like father, like dad is faceless, right? You you talked to yes. in the previous episode about like iconicity and like the thing about dad is that he is a, an icon. He he has like his his little fedora. He is faceless. He's just kind of a. a you know, it's an oval with a nose. He has a pipe, like a briar pipe that he is smoking. He has a dress shirt. He has a tie uh, and business slacks. So in terms of like presentation, he is all icon. But then all of the sort of details about him, uh, like the clowns and the baking and so on, is just highly unusual. We also get, uh, we see Colonel Sassaker. For the first time, presumably. Yes, yes. He is an edited uh, Colonel Sassaker, as he shows up here, is an old uh, engraving of Mark Twain, uh, atop of which I think Hussey has photoshopped a kind of conical wizard's hat. Mm hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, John, uh, opens up the Colonel Sassaker book and, uh, reads this little section from Sassaker's, basically this manual for like how to do all sorts of japes and tricks. Uh, and it's, uh, old timey writing, like 19th century sort of Southern genteel kind of thing. Uh, and he explains how to like uh, tie fake insects to strings and then move them around with sticks to scare people. <laughs> um, the other thing worth mentioning here is uh, kind of the uh, the casual racist joke. In the Colonel Sassaker? Yeah. Did you notice this? I, I or, or, or sort of like like, um, like there there is uh, we'll, we'll let's unpack this then. Mm-hmm. Please do. So Sassaker walks through the list of people that you can play your pranks on, like your spinster aunt who makes you do chores or whatever, and then finishes up this list by mentioning this guy that you may see in town, the sort of hypothetical character whom he describes with a term that was formerly used to uh, legally catalog and categorize people who were mixed race. So a a racist term um, specifically used for people who were thought to be one eighth African American uh, or, you know, one eighth black. I I don't know the the history of this particular term outside of the United States, but I know in the United States uh, it has a history and that is a a sort of legal uh, category in history that was uh, put forth in various places. So it's presented sort of um, as if it were the punchline to the joke really and it's not good Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah um and so on this is kind of what i gestured at uh previously uh mark twain's got some baggage Mm -hmm. uh and uh, if you aren't from the u.s uh you know mark twain writes uh the adventures of tom sawyer but also a book uh, uh, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, uh, both of which are still widely read in kind of middle school English classrooms. Uh, and in particular, uh, Huckleberry Finn uh, has uh, a lot of issues with just... Uh, it is about a young boy in pre-Civil War Missouri who uh, runs away with an enslaved man. Uh, it is not a pro-slavery novel, I think, in in, in a sense, but it is not it does not treat its black the, the principal black character well at all um and this is kind of a, a a sticky element in twain and his legacy uh which is the kind of ways that race can get used for humor 
Um, and here we see that kind of being not necessarily uncritically or actually, yes, uncritically kind of ported forward into uh, this fictionalized version of Twain. Um, and I want to be clear, like, I think the joke here, joke in, in kind of the biggest scare quotes I can make uh, through audio um, is like, isn't it funny how people used to be racist? Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's sort of like my best faith reading of what this is doing. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I think no matter how much faith uh, we can give to this joke, it does not change the fact that actually like this is just a, a, a joke about like uh, calling a, a person of color like basically uppity. Right. And then playing a trick on them uh, to, to kind of take them down a notch. Uh, it's just a very brief thing, but I want to point it out, uh, because Homestuck also comes into a point in time when I already said, we talked about this last time with, um, the use of the, the R word, uh, which also we get our first usage of in this section, uh, just kind Mm -hmm. of casually, it's a certain type of internet humor. Um, and we've, and we are going to watch, uh, the internet and kind of fan spaces and fan communities, uh, pivot away from this, uh, and I just think it's worth like noting how these strands are, are present in Homestuck and are going to continue to be present um, throughout it in, in ways, uh, you know, big and small. Yeah, that kind of joke, I think, uh, the, the kind of Mark Twainism, that writing in a 19th century style as the joke and then kind of importing all of the prejudice of that time um, into the structure as the joke, you know, as you're saying, I th- that was really common. I mean, that that's kind of like something awful front page humor. Yep. Um, it, very much the kind of, I, I don't know, the kind of uh, <laughs> the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde relationship with like uh, Maddox and that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, that was popular at the time, the greatest web page in the universe or whatever it was called. Um, I, I associate it in a cohort with like Ninja and, and what, uh, and like Chuck Norris and uh, epic bacon memes this idea that the reference itself and the um that the that writing in 19th century like stylings is inherently funny and then just pushing that forward is going to of course continue to be funny mm-hmm. um you know it, it's weirdly enough like sort of anti-humor um and um you know i i think it benefited a lot from like no one knowing what was funny yeah or not um that repetition itself is funny in some ways Mm -hmm. and then uh, i mean this is also kind of i think you know we we were at a point in time uh where you could say oh but i'm being racist ironically and that's the joke and people wouldn't say to your face like that's just bullshit like stop that yeah like that's not how that works like you can't be racist ironically and somehow remove the harm that racism does and the thing that's worth remembering here, too, right, is that while I think for the most part online fan communities have moved away from that, or at least we have like a healthy knee jerk reaction that's like, hey, wait, hold on, what are you doing here? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, just go pick up a random Netflix comedy special and you're going to see the exact same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, th- this is still a major part of particularly our stand up culture, but uh, comedy in general, right? That's like, ha ha ho, I'm ironically being a sexist, or ho ho ho, I'm ironically being a racist. That's still a huge part of of our comedy culture broadly in American culture, at least. And, uh, this is just, you know, a flavor of it. This is the type of flavor that that took in, uh, you know, the early two thousands, uh, and, and was pretty common. So not shocked by that, but 
Uh, John goes into, like, his dad's study and, like, discovers all kinds of shit there. We get our first kind of, like, I think our first kind of intermedial uh, thing where we get him uh, playing the piano and doing stuff. Yeah, that's our first, uh, I think, flash with sound. So if you have not read Homestuck and are unfamiliar with it, and uh, one of the things that I think really makes it catch on, and we have yet to see kind of uh, the things that I think really make the best use of this, but one of the things that makes it very distinct from Problem Sleuth uh, is that it has these uh, longer animated uh, sections that are in Flash and that have sound and musical accompaniment. Uh, so John goes into his dad's study and he plays uh, a, a haunting refrain on the piano. Uh, and the song that he plays is called Showtime. Uh, and uh, in, in kind of homestuck fashion, very shortly after this, we get a remix of this song when he finally meets his dad and they have their JRPG battle. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, it's just a remix of the song that he played on piano. Uh, the other thing, of course, to, to I think if we're talking about differences between this and Problem Sleuth, because uh, it's kind of gone unremarked up until this point, is that all this talk about characterization we've done, they didn't really have that in Problem Sleuth. Like mm -hmm. the characters in Problem Sleuth do not talk to one another. Everything in Problem Sleuth is just kind of free and direct discourse because everyone is like a little... Uh, like a game piece being moved around on a board. Everyone's a stick figure, right? Uh, so the characters here having not only their own voices, but their own like typing styles. Everyone has like, like the fact that they have dialogue at all. And then that each character uh, has a text that they, a text color that they speak in. Uh, all of this is making these characters particular in ways that MS Paint Adventures had not been uh, very particular with its with its characters. And now we've gotten this other kind of media element of flashes, uh, things using sound, uh, and um, it's only going to get uh, more and more complex from this point. Mm -hmm. And that's infrastructural too. Uh, the, the Homestuck I think is really interesting as um, a text because it's only a few years it's only what three four years that uh, before that 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 broadband you know, what, what we used to call broadband uh -huh. right but like better internet right uh becomes accessible so i remember trying to play flash games on like a 56k modem at the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s and it just not being a thing that I could do on like my home computer. Mm -hmm. and so like, of course we had to get in trouble in my computer science class, <laughs> you know, doing it there because we had like better internet in the early two thousands there, um, you know, playing tower defense games or whatever. And so the, this easy mixing of sound files and flash animation and all that kind of stuff you know when you click on the new homestuck panel you know in, you can even experience this now i think clicking through this archive when you click the next one you don't know what you're going to get you know you could get an animated thing or you could get a, a sound or or audio or whatever i mean i know that the sometimes there's like the s or or whatever to to say to you hey there's sound here but in a general sense, it's like, oh, anything could be coming down the pipe here, you mm -hmm. know, based on whatever Hussey decides to do. And that's really exciting, but that's only afforded because of uh, internet infrastructure mm -hmm. um, that, that people could engage with that. You couldn't make this 10 years before. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't have the same kind of intermedial mix. Um, or, or if you did, it would just require like, hey, this is an animated website. Mm -hmm. um, uh, like all those like pre.com bubble bursting websites that were terrible and impossible to navigate 
uh, that had like a million animated frames and shit like that on it. That I just like as a, you know, as someone in the late 90s, like I said, with a 56K modem, um, you know, my parents' house never got. They eventually had to like learn how to tether their phone in order to get internet service. Mm-hmm. It, that Where they live never got broadband or you know better internet than phone service basically Mm -hmm. um but just because of like this extremely rural area so that kind of thing that matters that like changes the shape of the internet and and homestuck can only emerge at a certain point where those things can be afforded Mm -hmm. um you know so it's not just like the creative use of materials it it is a historical entity that takes place in a particular moment um in time so just i think it's worth mentioning that thinking about that a little bit yeah i mean if part of this is about reflecting on internet history right and i remember uh opening up a like because we didn't have flash video opening up like a QuickTime movie in and uh then walking away from the computer for 25 (laughs) minutes so i could let three minutes of footage load yeah yeah huge thing yeah uh so yeah uh uh, homestuck comes about you know in 2009 at 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 the point where i think broadband is really starting to catch on uh in in a general sense and that's where we get all of this all of this fun stuff um yeah yeah, and and flash is like common yes very commonly used at that point like flash games in particular you know newgrounds has been around um you know that kind of thing i don't know do you know when newgrounds formed uh, new, the, yeah, Newgrounds is definitely like I was on Newgrounds in like middle school. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, same. So way before this. 1995. Uh, and Newgrounds is going to come back later. Oh, really? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Just leave that little breadcrumb. The people who know know what I'm talking about. But we'll talk about Newgrounds again eventually. Um. So uh, other thing here. Interesting. Yeah. So Newgrounds initially formed in 1995, which is wild to me. I remember I remember a kid like actually maybe one of the first things I ever heard about the Internet was a kid at school telling me about stick death animations on Newgrounds. Oh, yeah. Stick death. Dang. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when I was in middle school, uh, uh, this guy. <laughs> uh really an interesting fellow just across the board like like a real this is not this is not telling anything identifying this is many people i grew up with but like like a real country boy right Mm -hmm. who loves dubstep yeah he loves dubstep uh he probably does at this point i don't know (laughs) uh but brad brad was like the kind of middle schooler who wore cowboy boots every day he wore jeans tucked into the cowboy boots Mm -hmm. like you like you would do it I, i think he went on to do some um some like rodeo stuff maybe and certainly was a part of that culture by the time we got to high school he was like the kind of dude who wore a cowboy hat anytime you could be wearing a cowboy hat Mm -hmm. um and when that was like appropriate but for the most part was wearing like a trucker cap but like not as a fashion thing just he was the kind of guy who wore a trucker cap Mm -hmm. but so he's like this this dude who real real country boy but we would get into computer science class where you were supposed to be learning how to type or whatever that dude would be on stick death all the time. <laughs> so it was just, I don't know. And he was like super well, uh, like educated on like how to get around, to like how to type the specific URL or like you use HTTPS to get around, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or like look for mirrors of games that were not blocked, mm-hmm. you know, from mm-hmm. by the thing. So like really hyper, really good, had dedicated a lot of his brain space into getting around the middle school internet blockers that we had. But outside of that was just like, 
like a farm boy mm-hmm. <laughs> and like only cared about like farm shit and football. So uh, shout out to Brad, wherever you are, uh, you know, you helped me play a lot of like tower defense and like, uh, you know, little games where like stick men came across the screen and you like shot arrows at them. Um, you know, big ups to you. I got a question for you, Michael on page 78. Mm-hmm. Is that the Joker? Oh yes. Okay. <laughs> little Joker statue. Yeah. Okay. There's a little Joker. Sta- I guess he's a Harlequin. Yeah. Uh, there's a little Joker statue in uh, John's dad's office. <laughs> Weird. Um, we get to see some commercials. Very much, Hussey seems to be the person who has like that ironic uh, relationship to the '90s. Um, in like 90s media yeah because the the commercial that's on the tv is the it's the high c ecto cooler commercial so slimers bopping around and of course we have like the off-brand slimer on on john's shirt uh and also the slimer pogo ride out in the in the yard um and we get i would say this is on page i'm trying to click around this is on page 82 i would say one of our first like straight up artistic moments in this Mm mm-hmm uh, and this is the, like, uh, what's the name of the track? I want to get the name of the track right. It is Wind Chime Foley by Clark Powell. Yes. So the, it, it, we get this jingling wind chime, and we get the kind of camera. You know, I think that, that Hussey is a, a, an immaculate stylist in some ways, especially with these animations. Uh, John is looking in the mailbox trying to get this, you know, hoping that the suburb beta is in there. Doesn't it's not in there unfortunately. But we get this kind of like swooping camera that's that pans out from him and then cuts to to shots of like the neighborhood and looking around and the camera is pulling out eventually in this kind of crane shot, you know, or what in the real world would be a crane shot, uh out up in this kind of isometric style. And it's this euphoric empty bizarre feeling it feels very much and this is deeply overused but i think that this is appropriate it's a very lynchian kind of feel to it uh very much kind of feels like those opening um vibes of blue velvet Mm -hmm. um of like here's the suburbs you know if if uh someone had walked or, or ridden by on a fire truck and waved you know idyllically at the camera i wouldn't be shocked by that right there's this suburban evocative feel going on here and it's completely unnecessary right like it it, and i mean that in the sense of it doesn't push the plot forward it has nothing to do with this kind of push pull gamey feel that that is throughout the rest of it it is wholly centered on aesthetics and feelings and the writing here is just wholly different from everything else right Mm -hmm. um uh it says here i'm trying to can i mute this thing yes i can okay it just keeps playing. So, like, this is the thing, right? Wholly descriptive. It is your 13th birthday, and uh, as with all 12 preceding it, something feels missing from your life. The game presently eluding you is only the latest sleight of hand and the repertoire of an unseen riddler, one to engender a sense not of mirth, but of lack. His coarse schemes are those less of a prankster than a common pickpocket. His riddle is absence itself. It is a mystery dispersing altogether like the moon's faint reflection with even one pebble of inquiry dropped in its black well. It is it is the most diabolical riddle of all. And it has this like Walt Whitman quote that I don't think is real. Absence diminishes little passions and increases great ones as wind extinguishes candles and fans a fire. Walt Whitman. And no, Walt Whitman did not say that. 
and, and it ends with, you have a feeling it's going to be a long day. And this is really a, a strange bit of internet writing uh, because this is um, this is both uncommon and common at the same time, I would say. Mm-hmm. On one hand, this is extremely uncommon for what we've experienced so far, for the most part. Right. Um, this is the narrator 100% stepping in and kind of giving a characterization. It's almost an internal monologue for John, but it's kind of not really. And it's matched with this flash animation that really does give you the sense of like abandonment and weirdness of like where he's living and the context he lives in. It's very strange. And actually, before the part that I read, it says, it's the one desolation plays. It's talking about the tune. Yeah. A familiar note is produced. It's the one desolation plays to keep its instrument in tune. So on one level, it's it's kind of uncommon. It really sets a different tone for what's happening here in Homestuck in particular. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think this is an extremely common tone in webcomic writing in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, or in, in a general sense, when the people who are writing webcomics, this particular class of people, are trying to give a literary tone to it. This is exactly how the more quote-unquote artful um, Penny Arcade comics are written. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there, there are quite a lot of them in which, for whatever reason... Um, for whatever reason, the creative team over there takes this kind of like... Uh, grandeur tone to them and i think reading the reading them at the time i was like wow this is like pretty impressive and now reading them i think they're extremely embarrassing it, you know it's almost self-parody mm-hmm. of of like what does it sound like to write smart literary work um however i think that that it lands for when hussey does it i don't think it lands when penny arcade does it i think it i do feel like it is embarrassing to read you know when i read it like I, there, there's one that I re- that really sticks in my head. That's about like um, you know sings the song to end the earth mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, that's a very famous one that you know got got quoted quite a bit around the time of like being oh my gosh the writing of Penny Ar- Penny Arcade for whatever reason and especially reading the kind of like commentary that happens in those like longer blog posts that that matches those the kind of archness that happens there that I don't think is in any way ironic or doesn't read that way. Um, that doesn't work for me. It didn't, and worked maybe at the time, but certainly doesn't work for me now. I think it, I think it's bizarre. Mm-hmm. I think that Hussey can do it, mm-hmm. and I think that it transcends this kind of parody of grandness and actually kind of gives character to this world. I don't know. I, what did it feel like at the time, or what does it feel like to you now? Um, it did feel very strange at the time uh, because the other thing that's worth mentioning here is that this is a title card. Uh, John uh, looks up from the mailbox and kind of gazes out over the neighborhood and the camera after doing that crane shot, uh, it, it flashes to white and then it fades back in and we see the sun up in the sky, uh, a very iconographic sun uh, represented mm-hmm. as it's, it's white and it's just like this big circle with like pointy uh, like rays bursting off of it, right? It does not look like a realistic depiction of the sun at all. Um, and then next to it, kind of just hovering in the sky, is Homestuck. So this, uh, revel- it's not even a revelation of the title. We already know what Homestuck is. Uh, but mm-hmm. there is this moment where Hussey is stepping in, as you say, directly as an author narrator and signaling that something different is going to happen here. Uh, at the time, especially, you know, coming off of like Problem Sleuth and stuff, I had no idea what that could be because this could just be like it is is Hussey kind of going for grandeur here 
because it's funny to go for grandeur and then have, uh, you know, six million more pages where a kid futzes around with his inventory screen. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, so, um, that was kind of how it felt at the time and how it strikes me now is, uh, I, I can appreciate how melancholy it is because I know how long this day is going to be. Uh, mm-hmm. it is in fact going to be a very long day. And, uh, this scene, one of the things that is going to happen in Homestuck uh, is that scenes that happen at first, like they, they happen at one point, sort of early in the narrative, uh, take on extremely strong and unexpected resonances much, much later in the story for various mm-hmm. reasons. Um, uh, and one of the reasons, actually, I guess I'll, I'll sort of because uh, we've already seen some of it is uh, what in the comic uh, or rather like the language around the comic gets called uh, a callback. Uh, so mm-hmm. like, for instance, the way that Rose is introduced uh, at near the end of the act and her introduction is formally the same as John's where she shows up and we try to name her and someone tries to name her flighty broad and that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And then we get her actual name. Uh, so, uh, Homestuck will repeat itself, uh, but always repeat with a difference. The other way to think of this is sort of uh, iterate. And a lot of stuff that is going to be iterated on or called back to, um, weirdly enough, shows up in kind of this little title card here. Uh, like it's, it's very small in general at this point. Uh, but this is, this is in fact a thematic statement for this story, uh, in in some ways, right. About John and how he feels about his life. And, you know, what does the idea of being homestuck really sort of signify? Uh, because that is, you know, kind of what, what occurs to me now, of course, like thinking of this, if I were imagining myself as a new reader is like, okay, John is kind of, you know, sad, feels something is as is absent from his life. Uh, and he's in the other thing to mention about the neighborhood, uh, is that it's completely deserted. John is the only person out on the street. Uh, it is all the houses also kind of look the same. They're all white. Uh, uh, they look like, you know, little NPC houses or something. Uh, and yeah, it looks like Sim. I mean, eventually we get a zoom out at the end of this, this act and it's Sim city. Yes. So, uh, you know, being what what does it mean to be homestuck, right? Like, because John has John has left the house. Like he, this is actually this is the first time in the comic John steps out of the house, and that's when we get the title homestuck. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, th- there's something, th- there's a deeper, more meaningful, maybe way in which uh, uh, someone can be homestuck than actually being literally trapped inside a house. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes and, uh, meets his dad and does all the stuff. Doesn't meet his dad, I guess. <laughs> uh, I really, there's something really interesting going on with, uh, this is on page 89. Mm-hmm. Something really interesting going on here, like visual language wise, right? Like he goes in here and there's this like little flash animation of like, you know, iconic stuff happening, you know, like, uh, these like, uh, smash cuts, I guess, of different uh, insert shots. Um, close-ups like hyper close-ups like the pipe and things like that mm-hmm. but then we get these two panels on uh 89 the the one at the top is like this very video game logic representation where we can see john's dad's thoughts and he's like trying to parse out if that's john or not yeah and it's like clipping back and forth blinking back and forth like is this john with or without a mask and 
uh, we get this Metal Gear Solid, uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, exclamation point over John's head. And then, like, the mask is defeated and, like, goes back into the inventory because his dad sees through it, through it, right? So this is another moment. This is a really small moment, but it's a moment of, like, rules clarification that just because we've done something as the audience, the game's logic won't always work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his dad, just because we put the disguise on doesn't mean that his dad's, it's going to work on his dad. Mm-hmm. Um, then he fights his dad. Yeah. They, they literally, as I said, they have a JRPG battle. Yeah. But without choices in it. Yeah. Which is interesting. Like it's, it's the, it's the part of the, the thing so far that it fits so closely into existing game understandings and archetypes. Because it's a JRPG battle, mm-hmm. and yet it seems like we have no, like we have no impact on it, the audience. Right. It's it's totally a, a, a thing to kind of like fiddle with. There is no way that you can uh, work through this. Uh, it's called strife. Um, I should mm-hmm. say because that's uh, going forward. This is how kind of battles uh, in Homestuck are going to be referred to as strife animations or things like that. Uh, mm. This is not actually a game in the sense that you can navigate your way through it and get to a victory condition. Uh, It is taking the format of a JRPG battle and making it a uh, like, you know, kind of chopping off what is sort of normally the gamey end of it and using it to set tone or uh, communicate something about this world and about the relationship between these characters because we have two options we can click through with john one is aggrieve which is kind of attack and mm-hmm. literally john just john is holding a hammer uh runs across the kitchen and like swings the hammer at his dad um uh but his dad uh will auto pastry which is a joke that calls back to Problem Sleuth, where there were there was a battle system in Problem Sleuth, and one of the things that the characters there could do was auto-parry. So mm-hmm. his dad blocks... Uh, it's called auto-pastry because his dad blocks the hit with uh, the cake that he is holding. This is the other detail, is when the battle mm-hmm. starts, like, the uh, dad is holding a cake, and then, like, all the candles light. Um... And then the other thing that John can do is uh, a move called Abjure, uh, which I guess is kind of like, you know, guard or something, at which point his dad will put out a kind of special move. Called, it's called Guardian uh, Rubric. Uh, and he there are two things I think that can happen. One is called Coddlebrand and one is called Dotesmite. And it's just him like shoving this birthday cake at his son. Like, look at this birthday cake while John puts up his hand and like shakes his head vociferously no. <laughs> yeah, because he's doting on him, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's this... I think this is part of like the, I don't know if it's the charm. I think there's certainly something going on with the grabbiness of language here that, that Homestuck rewards you for having a very big vocabulary Mm -hmm. (laughs) to to accomplish nothing. It's not as if like, it's not as if doting on someone is like, knowing that word does not make you a better person in the world, Mm -hmm. but the, the kind of, evocation of that suggests something about like i don't know maybe you as a reader if you know if you get it right because uh, the word doting is not commonly used i don't think mm-hmm. um, or it's used in very particular contexts like only certain types of people dote right like grandparents yeah, exactly. dote 
Exactly. But even I think, I don't think many people would say that, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's something you would encounter in a book. It's not something that people are talking about in the world. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a conversation where someone was like, oh, yes, my grandparents really were doting on me hard, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I don't think that's a thing. So there's something going on here about, like, the being in on it, I think. Like, this kind of literariness of being rewarded for it. I know that a lot of people have compared this. There's like kind of famously that that PBS Idea Channel thing about this being Ulysses. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, I don't, I don't know one way or the other, right? But... I, I think that that has something to do with it, that that these works, most works of kind of big, famous modernist fiction reward you for having this kind of depth of language that you can understand the world. You know, this is something like Cormac McCarthy is mm -hmm. very, it's important for McCarthy, right? If you have this depth of language, um, you get you can get more descriptively out of th those worlds. Um, one of my favorite jokes in, in cinema is in... Uh, the Noah Baumbach movie Kicking and Screaming where uh, they're reading. There's a book club between two people and the, and the broadest joke of the thing is that uh, it's a book club between two people in which one person didn't read the book. <laughs> and so he's pretending to have read All the Pretty Horses by uh, Cormac McCarthy, but Eric Stoltz. Oh, God. Oh, it's great. Have you never seen that? I have I'll not you... seen this. This is oh, really the, funny. The, the clip is so funny. I'll send you the clip when we're done here. But the movie itself is 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 funny in, in, a, in a way I think actually that Homestuck is often funny. But uh, but but what happens at the very beginning is they're sitting down to do the book club and Eric Stoltz plays this bartender and he's like hyper educated and he's been in grad school for like 15 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, he sits down and he says, ah, you know, uh, thankfully, we both speak fluent Spanish for those sections, huh? Because <laughs> <laughs> huge chunks of all the pretty horses are it's just yes. in Spanish. Right. And if you don't read Spanish, you're kind of, you know, you're left to like kind of puzzle it out. Um, and that's how I feel about some of the humor here at Homestuck. It's like, oh, think, thankfully we know what doting means, huh? Mm -hmm. Huh, everybody? Um, and, uh, but anyway, so that, that's, that's a reference, understanding a reference by way of a reference, which all, everyone loves all the time. This, this is our Homestuckification of, of the Homestuck show, of course. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, he gets his package uh, from his dad, and he goes and installs Suburb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is like clearly kind of playing off of the Sims with the loading screen. Well, first, actually, what happens, I guess I should say, uh, is it starts out as like basically a command line prompt. Yeah, like a DOS prompt. Yeah. So it seems really boring. Uh, and this is where uh, TT slash Rose kind of shows up and is like, oh, yeah, no, it's not just like a game you pop in and you play. There are two discs, right? You have to have a disc for... Uh, the client part and then a disk for the server part. And so uh, at uh, the other thing that we know about uh, TT and the reason that she's been uh, message messaging John is that she already has her disks ready. So she's like looking for mm -hmm. someone to play with and TG, I think, you know, will not play with her. Uh, and so she's like, hey, John, like, come on, like install your game so I can be, uh, uh, you know, your your server player. Uh and yeah, uh, I know I think you were you were particularly struck by the way that like Spurb really kind of unfurls here. Uh, what what sort of mm -hmm. thoughts about that did you have? 
Well, the one thing I want to say, actually, before we I, I got my sequence out of line here, um, the, the thing here is this is where we get like such an elaborate set of jokes about things flying out of John's inventory yes. <laughs> and, and shooting out the window. So now he has a gosh, it's a first in first in first out system, a FIFO system, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, he started with a, a Philo and now he's a FIFO. Yeah, so which just means that when you add things to the array, the thing at the end of the array kicks out of it. So it just goes away, gets ejected. And so, uh, <laughs> but the way that that happens is literally ejected. So it fl- in the, the, the game space of the world that John lives in, <laughs> things rocket out the right side of the screen. And, but, and this is the kind of like really fascinating thing. It's a fully 2D world, but Hussey has in their head this imaginary of what is on the other side here, even if we don't really see it, you know, or haven't seen it too much up to this point. So like it shoots out the, the, this, uh, the PDA that he picked up of his dad's. He adds handcuffs, these fake handcuffs, and this PDA shoots out, and then we get the 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 camera flips like 180 degrees, or I guess no, 180 degrees, and then we see the, the window that this PDA has rocketed out, <laughs> and this is where like I I think that you know like I said I think that Hussey is stylistically very accomplished and good, like understands how to play the joke all the way out. And uh, so we get to look out the window <laughs> and it's just the lawn. And I tweeted these images out. It's just the lawn with glass and the PDA, like very small. Yeah. And the caption is just, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that, there's something about like the, the, the joke and then the reaction image mm-hmm. that is very internet humor. And uh, Hussey really understands, understands the rhythm of how to do that. Um, and so even better, right? Uh, in like two seconds later, John picks another thing up and then, <laughs> or actually picks a bunch of stuff up in order to eject things out the window. Yeah, because the people who are playing the game who, who think it would be funny. Well, and it's like the, the problem with like this inventory system is that in order to get to the things you need, you have to start ejecting things from the back of the array. <laughs> So in order to get to stuff, you have to pick up other stuff and then everything is just flying around like a a straight razor flies out of his inventory and uh, uh, hits the wall right directly into one of those movie posters into the face of Matthew McConaughey. From A Time to Kill, of course. He's a huge Matthew McConaughey fan. Yes. Which I think is really... Uh, another kind of, you know, uh, Nick Nicolas Cage ironic uh, appreciation, you know, or even unironic. I like Nicolas Cage a lot and I like the movies he does and I, I appreciate them unironically. Um, but this is also critical. This is before the McConaissance. Mm-hmm. This is way before um, True Detective. Yeah. And so, like, this is a weird moment of another kind of weirdly predictive appreciation going on here in Homestuck. Actually, but... yeah, no, he, he uh, John has the poster for Failure to Launch on his wall, too. And that is <laughs> yes. actually, that's great because, like, Failure to Launch is one of those films that is, like, the nadir of McConaughey's yes. career. <laughs> yes, of him doing all these, like, rom-coms in the 2000s. But... Um, he, uh, anyway, so John picks up a bunch of stuff and he's just flinging shit out his window. And then we cut, of course, back to this. <laughs> it's, it's extremely funny to me. We cut back to the shot of outside and it's like one of the books he's picked up. <laughs> and then, and then what, even further in the middle of the street with smear marks behind it, this, this cake that he's thrown out the window. And so <laughs> there's something about the way that this is drawn and the, and the like perfectly perspectival image of it, of looking at it from the, 
the window. There's nothing out there other than this tree, this PDA, this book, and then the smeared cake across the ground. That <laughs> it's funny. It's funny as hell to me. I love it. Yeah. Um, anyway, he he gets this rabbit from uh, from Conair. I I don't care about this. I assume this is coming back, but um, you know, and has a has a conversation about about it from. Um, um tt sent it to him i think uh no tg sent him uh the okay. rabbit because oh yeah. uh, and this is not directly stated uh but you can sort of figure it out through context clues for tg's birthday john sent him a pair of uh sunglasses specifically the ones actually worn by ben stiller in the starsky and hutch film Oh, so I knew that they were by Ben Stiller because it talks about Ben Stiller's um, face being or fingers touching him, uh, his his gaunt face or whatever he says. Mm -hmm. But um, but I couldn't figure out exactly what film it was from. But this is another moment of like Homestuck rewards you for paying attention to these really fine details and putting them together. Yeah. And I think um, um, we don't know about uh, the Starsky and Hutch thing yet in text. It will be made explicit. But one of the reasons you could figure it out here if you were a like longtime MSPA reader is that uh, one of the things that would happen in Problem Sleuth, like with some regularity, is like, OK, I have made it out into my office into a hallway now to like turn left and walk down the hallway and leave this building. Oh, shit. Someone has blocked the doorway out of the hallway with a giant bust of Snoop Dogg in character from Starsky and Hutch. Uh -huh. So like Starsky and Hutch and specifically the Stiller Shades uh, show up in a uh, problem sleuth as a plot critical element uh, that gets mm -hmm. like bopped all around problem sleuth of course has its own like big sort of like adventure game world and like keeping track of like who has this the this the ben stiller shades and who's wearing them uh is like its whole other thing so this is like a little callback to problem sleuth in that way mm -hmm. it's a game within a game mm -hmm. quite literally right recognizing all of these references but they they start suburban as you explained right there's one person who's server and one person who's like client basically and uh they it's it's the sims it it allows one person to act as like the sims player for someone else in the world mm -hmm. and so um rose starts doing all kinds of things <laughs> to, to john's house and it's like it introduces this interface right we get a very it's very much the sims um and uh, presumably she's navigating his little house here and doing stuff yeah she like takes his magic chest and like drops it on the roof and john is like and john is like talking to her on pester chum while this is happening so he's like w w is my magic chest on the roof and she's like sorry getting used to the controls and he just responds like unhappy face <laughs> mm -hmm. uh um Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just saying, there's there's something uh, just very absurd and funny to me about this idea of your friend having like total constructive control over the space that you're in, and you're just kind of hanging out in your room talking to them on AIM while this is happening. Yeah, there, there's a kind of, uh, you know, you said earlier or in the last episode, you read a quote from Hussey talking about they're, they're having to kind of be a... Uh, uh, an improv, mm -hmm. you know, partner basically. And, you know, a big part of improv is yes. And, and what's interesting is that, that 
for this conceit to work, this idea that someone else in the real world can control your life like The Sims is just like the ultimate yes and. It's like, okay, well, yeah, all right. I guess that's true when that happens. So let's go. Let's do it. Um, and uh, I think that's probably, I don't know one way or the other. Obviously, I haven't, re- I actually have not read anything past what we're talking about for this episode in particular, but I imagine that carries through through the whole thing. And that kind of is, that seems to me to be an engine, at least at this point, of sort of part of the novelty and the interesting parts of Homestuck is that everything is yes anding almost all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a fully responsive universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that carries through certainly through this whole first act. I don't really care for any of this, like, the Cruxtruder, the Totem Lathe, and the Alchemiter. Yeah. So the we get to learn all of the different names for the different parts of Spurb, uh, and they're all the things that you just said. In the commentary, Hussey mentions that a lot of these things are based on things you would actually find in, like, a furniture workshop or whatever, but... uh, Mm -hmm. It's rewarding, again, kind of what you said, the the knowing words, knowing language, and then being able to recognize like, uh, you know, Crux Truder is not quite a pun, uh, but also sort of is because it's like combining the word for, you know, Crux and Extrude. uh, And Mm -hmm. we see it like Extrude, this weird blue, like cylinder that looks like you know crystal or some sort of gem or whatever and then that has to be put into the totem lathe which comes carves it down into this other thing which then gets scanned by this other thing and and uh then from that uh thinking here about uh you know like digital matter and stuff uh these uh game constructs uh, scan objects, get information from them, and then generate new objects based on kind of these uh, human unreadable inputs. I, I can see why you don't care for it, and uh, because it's just, it's a lot of stuff to kind of think through. We also get introduced to all of the spurb, uh, like there's a kind of uh, currency or sort of um, resource called uh, build grist, that determines how often uh, like a wall can be demolished, for instance, or rebuilt. Uh, and Hussey says, uh, well, a couple of things gleaned from the commentary that are interesting. One is that uh, there's a scene where Rose uh, is trying to, exp- uh, so uh, she wants, John asks her, can you pick up the stuff that I threw out into the street? And she tries, but her cursor can't move uh, that far past his house. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, because and she's like, oh, okay, so this must be tethered to you, the player, in some way. And so she builds, like, she expands John's house. She just does the Sims thing where you hold a controller or whatever, and you just build out, like, a kind of bare room off the corner of another room, and that allows her to reach over far enough to pick up those things. In the commentary for that page, Hussey says, uh, basically, uh, this was one of the first ideas I had that like led directly to Homestuck, like this kind of situation, this image and Homestuck kind of falls out from this particular scene. Uh, That's a good, uh, this is a good maybe place to ask you this. How far ahead did Hussey plan? So I don't know though. uh, Basically from very early on, 
I think like fairly early on within Homestuck itself, like within the first three to four acts, most definitely. Here's the other thing to keep in mind, actually. Uh, when Homestuck started, one of the things Hussey was saying is that just like Problem Sleuth, this is going to last one year. The other thing that Hussey would say, uh, and even after the, the one year mark blew through, like just got obliterated, um, Hussey would continue to say, like, I know how this ends. Mm-hmm. Now, when we get to the ending, uh, we'll sort of be able to think about what does it mean when you say you know how this story ends, especially in the context of this story. But uh, there are there are certainly things here that show up that I would say, like, yeah, no, Hussey, like, wanted to go in this direction, wanted to pull this kind of thing in. Uh, and then there are other things that are going to become hugely important um, that Hussey has admitted uh, just, like, kind of emerged organically like Mm -hmm. oh this is interesting i'm going to pull this into the story and like uh shoot things kind of off in this direction yeah because like for part of the reason i ask is like suburb conceptually seems uh fully formed at the beginning of of homestuck right like it seems really clear to me that that hussy knows that they want to get to a sims like in this thing Mm -hmm. and that, that like this doesn't feel organic to me at all um, the the kind of deep complexity of this thing, yeah, and all of its interrelations, right? Um, it, you know, in some ways, even the data structure stuff feels more responsive than even this does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this this feels like it's planned. I really do love this. Is on page one fifty six. I really love that Rose is playing and is on the inside of John's house and then puts this, like, what what is it? The Crux Struder, maybe? Mm-hmm. Puts it in the doorway because... <laughs> and, and he's like, why did you put it in the front door? Like, in the exact thing. And she's like, I just thought it looked good there. There's a little notch and everything. And it fits right <laughs> in. <laughs> and, and it's because, like, you know, uh, uh, pictorially for us, and, and presumably for Rose, too, because we see the world in the same way, uh, this door notch... Um, for us, it just looks like a little thing, but you know, if we were to put the walls all the way up, we would see that that's where the front door is. So mm-hmm. I, I really love that. There, there's some really interesting stuff going on with like, how do things get represented in games and how could that create for fun confusion? Um, and this again is another purely hussy thing. Like, uh, the command here is just deploy it mm-hmm. and hussy gets to decide where to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that seems pretty important here. Um, there's a lot of just like, I think, wheel spinning here in the middle for the most part. Um, you know. Yeah. We get to look at dad's PDA and we see that he yeah. is a part of uh, a version, like a, a sort of like Twitter clone called Serious Business that is just a bunch <laughs> of like people who seem to act like look and dress like him. Like it's a guy asking like, oops, I accidentally dipped my, well, <laughs> like how, how it is actually, uh, written it's it's much more like professional and clipped but i accidentally dipped my tie into some coffee like please help me with this stain before it sets like it's very urgent and everyone is responding like have you tried this have you tried this try this (laughs) that's not unlike what twitter felt like at the beginning (laughs) (laughs) uh you know i i uh darius kazemi you know i I think darius made this bot that just just retweeted things from the first year of twitter Mm -hmm. Uh, and that I think I'm, pr- I'm 99% sure that was a Darius bot. And, uh, 
<laughs> that was a lot of it. <laughs> uh, this this also inserts the series of jokes of Rose destroying John's house yes. on accident, which is also really funny to me. And and it's made funny. I mean, this is a really cool moment of like how the text and the animation or the text and the images work together. Um, it's on uh 163 and so like we see we watch the cursor just rip the toilet (laughs) out of the ground right or out of the the thing and we get a little pipe and it like squirts water or something and it's just floating through the air and seemingly simultaneously right this is impossible but this is the funny the funniness of it the comedy is that rose just types whoops (laughs) john types whoops what and we don't ever get you know i mean he eventually finds out what's happening uh, but Rose just puts the toilet on the front or in the backyard. <laughs> and so like, they're still chatting, but we are watching what she's doing with the cursor. And so there, there's a lot of stuff. I, I was actually talking about this recently in game study, study buddies in that episode we did on buckles that there's interesting stuff happening in game logic where what's happening in front of us. And then the information that we're getting about it are actually from kind of different domains and it's game structures that allow those things to kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not weird for us to be reading narration or hearing people talk in both cinema and in video games and yet be looking at something that's not related to those things. Mm-hmm. You know, that's voiceover in cinema. That's a huge amount of video games. You know, that's audio logs or it's, um, uh, uh, you know, radio chatter or whatever. Um Homestuck is is uh, webcomicifying that in some ways by mm-hmm. giving us the log and the animation at the same time. Um, it functions like voiceover, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, there's a very uh, brief moment here where John talks to GG or Garden Gnostic, uh, who yeah. has uh, green text. Uh, I don't think we mentioned it, but TG, Turntech Godhead, has red text. So this is how these are, are mm-hmm. sort of... Um, being distinguished uh gg has not spoken much uh but she's very chipper uh uses kind of like double question marks when she asks a question and uh she's kind of like being very insistent and that sort of thing uh but she wants to know if john has received the birthday present she sent um which should be a green package which john has already seen was in the 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 passenger seat of his dad's car and also dad has left the house at this point because he has run through all of his baking supplies and needs to go to the store to pick up more baking (laughs) supplies um yep so that's kind of like we we that's kind of a thing that's being set up we know that gg has sent another present and that's kind of important um and john is like i'm very busy because i'm playing spurb and gg is you know well that's what's that um you know what's spurb and he says oh it's just this game it's okay i guess i'm still figuring it out and gg replies whoa what was that uh john says what was what she says there was a loud noise outside my house. It sounded like an explosion. A lot of exclamation points. Wow, really? I will go outside and look. Oh man, all right. Just be careful, okay? I will. So, by far, I feel like we we are at this point supposed to know that Gigi is maybe the most mysterious friend because things are happening on her end uh, in a way that they don't seem to be happening uh, for uh, TG or for Rose. Well, and you're saying her. We don't know that as a reader, right? Like, yeah, I, uh, I, I guess we don't. Oops. Um, let that go on record as being the the one mistake that I am ever going to make in accidentally revealing a piece of information to you too early. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so you know john like does all this stuff the the first thing it really like i guess not the first thing because i i I legitimately began laughing when i saw that shit flying out the window but on 171 where she rips that (laughs) the bathtub out of the thing Mm -hmm. and just types oh fuck and there's no response from him because he's not at the computer Uh is uh delight or he's not using pester chum i guess to talk to her specifically, it's that's great. Ripping that that bathtub out is I I find it delightful. Yeah, um, I love that. And then like, <laughs> oh, go I was ahead. gonna say, and then uh, her connection drops, and we get like the big flashing yes. thing on the screen saying connection lost because uh, Rose is having like internet trouble because it's storming where she is. We we find out, um, and so she drops the bathtub in the upstairs hallway while John is downstairs. <laughs> And then he comes back later and he this is after he's uh, used his hammer to let the kernel sprite out, which is, you know, this flashing blue game construct that that speaks in um, literally like symbols, like nonsense symbols. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I love that bit where John like is going upstairs and then he gets into the bathtub and he has that Mm -hmm. conversation with Rose. He's like, you can see me, right? Tell me what is wrong with this picture. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah this has uh some some really good uh rose writing here um and i when we find out i get i mean i guess implicitly right that she's east coast Mm -hmm. i i imagine she is like fully east coaster Mm -hmm. and like john is the middle america is that true do we know no uh i mean you are you are correct that rose is east coast um but john is actually west coast Oh, okay. uh, which is like um, just a, a thing we'll figure out later. But she Rose mentions, you know, like the sun has moved on to other time zones is how she puts it. Um, and we'll see. Yeah, they're writing here. Uh, uh, yes, the sun has already had its way with us here on the East Coast. It's lurid glare has moved on to younger time zones. Mm-hmm. And that's like it's such a particularly weird thing to say, but it's, it's uh, such characterful writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I Yeah, I think that's really, re- really astound- astounding stuff. Yeah, so uh, we've got this this kernel sprite. The other thing that uh, Rose is doing that's important is that she's reading game facts, um, <laughs> yes. trying to figure out how this game works. And uh, she points out that like none of the game facts are helpful. Like everyone is writing them in like very confused ways. Uh, like they don't seem to get very far. Uh, and like sort of the most she can figure out is that like the the kernel sprite is going to be prototyped and it's going to be prototyped twice or something. Is that where she starts talking about it? Yes, yes. She says that somewhere here. And the then the proto sprite gets that's prototyped. She puts the doll in the 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 sprite thing. And it becomes a screaming symbol shouting. It it sh- shouts in like fleur de lises. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and it's just it, it's a floating jester face that screams in fleur de lises and it's following John around the house. <laughs> yeah, and I hate this thing. Uh, so it's like a bunch of video game bullshit that's happening here. But he eventually sees this comet. And what's what's happening here is that eventually we learn Rose tells us so much about game facts that like there's a countdown that's happening. And John assumes that has something to do with the comet rightfully. Mm-hmm. But in the game facts, this is part of the game. Yeah, and one of the things Rose says is like, you know, it's kind of weird. Uh, a lot of the game, like none of the game facts really go beyond this point. Yeah, so there's something weird going on of like, the, not weird, right? But but I think that already, I've, I've said this, I think one time uh, so far, but the kind of meta moves that Homestuck is so famous for are already extremely apparent here at the beginning, right? Like 
This is someone in a real game who, you know, we are forum goers are playing a game with with Hussy. Mm-hmm. Inside of that game is someone playing a game with someone else where the game is impacting their life. And the game is also being played by other people who are writing about it on game facts that is being read by the person who's playing the game with John. Right. Like mm-hmm. there's this circular nightmare logic where I'm sure that someone has like plotted it out. And I, you know, I could plot it out if I wanted to, but that seems kind of against, uh, that seems both, um, not the point that probably shouldn't do that. But that also seems like for a sector of people who would read this extremely the point, Mm -hmm. you know, it's this kind of lower logic again of like mastering the maneuvers that this thing is making, I think is probably extremely gratifying for a certain type of player slash reader of Homestuck. Um, and I totally get why already at the beginning, how this has created a contentious community um, mm-hmm. that is, is pr- I, I can see the forum debates right now, despite the fact of not looking at the forum debates. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so much here that is set to, to both generate discussion and controversy about what is in and outside of the game and what we should be assuming and what we should not be assuming. Mm-hmm. Um, it truly is a thing that dominates the world right now. Um, and I think you're going to have a hard time writing this book. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> we'll see. I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be hard to like cram all this in. Um, I mean, I think that if anyone can do it, it's you, but uh, <laughs> you know, I think that it's going to be a task for sure. Yeah. Um, let's just talk about roast. Cause there's a bunch of just game shit going on here for the most part of like using all these game items. Let's have Rose chat. So uh, I've already said we're introduced to Rose in a way that is just modeled straight up after how John is introduced. We name her and we get to see her room. Uh, and uh, I don't know what, what do you, I mean, we've, we've talked actually a, a quite a bit about Rose as a character, but what do you think about sort of this introduction and kind of, uh, I mean, for me, I guess I'll say, uh, the the moment she walks out of her room and there's all the wizard shit on the walls uh like in the way that i reacted to the clowns and the harlequins in john's house with kind of dismay uh like mm-hmm. when the wizards show up i'm like oh yes like suddenly it's like <laughs> oh we've like doubled somehow like it was it was uh uh kind of distressing at first but now we've doubled down and now it's funny again and it's about wizards which kick ass so <laughs> Well, so th- I, I, I guess I'm very curious about your, I, I really, yes, like everything about Rose is very funny to me and is like of a very particular type of person at a very particular type of time in the same way that John is a very particular type of person at a very particular type of time. Um, something that's really interesting ab- about Rose's room and like the, the master shot we get of that is that her like cabinet she has is fully see-through. It's like, uh, Hussie forgot to draw it, yeah. <laughs> which is funny. Um, I don't know if there's any kind of uh, resonance to that, but it's similar, you know, it's designed for interaction, but I'm curious for you, what, okay, I'm just going to say this. You're a lot like Rose, Michael Watts. (laughs) You think? Let me read, let me read Rose's interest. Uh Uh-huh. Rather obscure literature. You enjoy creative writing and are somewhat secretive about it. I don't think you're really that secretive, but I bet at one point you were. Mm -hmm. Um, You have a fondness for the bestially strange and fictitious and sometimes dabble in psychoanalysis. You also like to knit. I don't know about that. And your room is a bit of a mess. I don't know about that. 
And on occasion, if just the right one strikes your fancy, you like to play video games with your friends. Yeah, you got a lot of overlap. I don't. I don't think I'm. I'm being uncharitable here, saying you got a lot of overlap with this, uh, like, f- character here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's weird because this was not lost on me when I was reading it. Like Rose, that's what I'm curious about. Yeah, when you're when you're you know whatever, <laughs> um, <laughs> when you sit down and read this in real time, are you like, oh, huh? <laughs> like what what was that like? Uh, it, it's, I mean, what is funny, I guess, is like, in some ways, this becomes like deterministic in that in 2009, I was probably not as into psychoanalysis as I became when I like figured out Lacan. Uh, mm-hmm. but in terms of like, you know, I mean, I, you know, John is a fun character and I, I like him. Uh, but like Rose shows up and this is a moment in the comic where I'm like, oh, I'm interested in this. Like, I mean, obviously I'm interested in it before, but I'm like, I'm interested in seeing like what happens with this character precisely for these reasons where it's like, oh, here are kind of, uh, you know, with the exception of knitting, basically, uh, here are all of my interests (laughs) just kind of laid out in a row with this character. And it's a, it's a really strange feeling. Uh, you know, I, I still have a, a great fondness for, for Rose as a character. Uh, in, in the modern parlance, Homestuck is about inventing a type of guy. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, one of the things that has kind of, I think, become very clear on the internet, especially now that social media has uh, sort of permeated our interactions, is that you can come up with whatever sort of collection of characteristics or interests or like convictions you want, string them together. And no matter how strange, unique or absurd you think those opinions and interests are uh, taken together, you can find someone who's almost basically that you will find that person on Twitter or uh, TikTok or, or what have you. Uh, there is something about how uh, what we call inventing a type of guy is really not inventing. It's using kind of the formal structures of like the way that the internet condenses our personalities uh, to uh, do something that Hussey is going to call in uh, the the commentary to, to the books, uh, not in the ones that we've read so far, but in, in a later book, uh, they call this um, uh, characterological alchemy. Uh-huh. Uh, Rose is into Flithulu, which I really like. Flithulu shows up in Problems, Luth. Um, so that's a little callback there as well. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I I mean, as soon as... Uh, <laughs> as... as um, as as soon as Rose like walks outside and there are these fantasy wizards, which doesn't appear to be original Hussey art. That appears to be so, <laughs> found somewhere. This is a callback to a, another thing that Hussey did, uh, which is uh, they found this is from the Penny Arcade forums. Um, they found a book like a big, like overpriced kind of novelty book in like a Barnes and Noble or something. Uh, and I remember mm-hmm. these things like a, like a coffee table. book. Yes. Called uh, Wizardology. <laughs> And there was one, I think, also for dragons or something. But it's just like all of these like kick-ass fantasy art uh, illustrations of like wizards standing on cliffs and casting lightning bolts and then like write-ups about like wizards and history and like wizard powers and things. And Hussey went through and uh, was 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 on uh, the, the Penny Arcade forums 
uh, was like writing commentary, like writing their own sort of story and uh, like drawing their own characters in the margins to like mock what was happening in wizardology. And so the wizard mm. thing uh, then ports forward here into Rose's home life. <laughs> the uh, yeah. And Rose like lives in a mansion. Mm hmm. Uh, you know, it's like this kind of gothic mansion and, um, you know, a little Shirley Jackson, I guess. And like goes to the observatory and is like trying to get Wi-Fi from like a mysterious, um, uh, I don't know, facility nearby. Very, very genre. Mm -hmm. There's a lab behind the uh, house. Yeah, a lab. And then <laughs> uses it to get on game packs, of course. Yes. And then... Um, you know, Rose is like fixing John's house and then the meteor hits essentially, right? Like what else happens here? I mean, yeah, that's that's really it. Uh, other than we get kind of the the process, like the, the process of Spurb's first challenge, which is opening the Cruxtruder, releasing the Colonel Sprite, prototyping the Colonel Sprite in some way, uh, then getting the uh, like Cruxite out of the Cruxtruder, having the totem lathe carve it down, and then using, uh, I think, is this the alchemeter? Uh, I cannot remember. Yeah, anyway, sure. Yeah, using that thing to uh, generate uh, this tree, sort of out of nowhere, this tree uh, that then drops an apple that John just takes a bite out of, because what else are you going to do with an apple? And of course, uh, the the sort of mythological uh, and religious uh, resonance here is obvious, right? Fruit of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. Um, so like the other thing then that Homestuck is being kind of very clear on is that this is this is not just a story about 13 year olds. That's just not something that's happening incidentally. Uh, this is going to be a story about learning something or coming of age in some way. Yeah, very. I mean, yeah, the it really has a like young adult literature kind of vibe already in it. Something interesting here, I mean, I guess maybe this is spoilers. We don't know if John bit that apple. In fact, the two images we get of the apple here, even after he does the thing, are not, it is an unbitten iconographic apple. Mm. Um, so I, I, I'm, presumably he does, based on what you just said, but th that is not clear here before the meteor smashes into him. I was thinking... There was, yeah, it was uh, the, yeah, we don't get to see it happen, but it's the command for this flash because it's a flash mm -hmm. that ends it. And we have kind of the countdown and everything. And it's uh, the command is John take bite of the apple. Yep. Um, and then we get this uh, weird little wayward vagabond. Yeah. Thing. Uh, where that you described earlier. So we don't really have to, to go through it again. Um, I think it's great so far. What an enjoyable little thing little story i'm sure it's not going to get any more complicated or weirder than it is no it's it's a uh, basically this is the plateau and we just it's smooth sailing from here to the end cool so uh next uh, so this is uh still episode or this is still uh what gosh episode one yep episode one we're in part two though we just finished part two mm -hmm. we're gonna have episode one what part three yes Next time. Yeah. So we will be reading uh, up until page 439. Great. Um, you can go to twitter.com slash range touch in order to learn about everything that we're doing. And you can support the show. The show is only possible. It's only made possible by listeners like you. 
um, because this is a Patreon-supported show. We set a goal to do it, and people came and showed up with their dollars uh, and uh, helped supporting it. We still need more dollars. Um, I'll, I'll always love to have more dollars. You can go to patreon.com slash rangedtouch in order to uh, help support the show. If you haven't already and you want to throw us you know, a cup of coffee a month, that all stacks up, and that's really helpful for us, and we really appreciate it. Um, so go over there and do that. You get some really cool, uh, exclusives. If you are listening to the show and you like hearing us talk about stuff, we have a lot of other stuff where you can do that. You can go to, uh, uh, you can listen to too much future, which is us talking about the fallout games. You can listen to just King things, which is us working through the works of Stephen King in chronological order. We're in the early 1980s right now. A lot of different cool stuff that you can uh, check out that we are up to. You can go to youtube.com slash range touch to see all the different YouTube videos that we put out. Um, so lots and lots of cool stuff for you to enjoy. And it is all made possible by uh, community support. So think about doing that. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, uh, please give us a, a five-star rating. Um, leave us a comment or a review. And also tell, I don't know, all your all your homestuck friends about this show. Uh, it, even, even your non-homestuck friends, especially your non-homestuck friends. This is how you can get them to think about homestuck, is making them listen to other people talk about it. Uh, we just, you know, we, we don't do advertisements. Uh, we, we rely entirely on word of mouth. Uh, so anyone that you can pass this along to who you think might enjoy it, uh, is greatly appreciated. And we, we want as many people as possible to be able to listen to this show and come to understand this strange thing called Homestuck. Yeah. And, you know, I will say I, I've read all of Act One so far. I, I, I'm not reading very far ahead. And I will say, uh, very, being very serious, not mad about it. It's like perfectly enjoyable. It's fun to think about. I've laughed really hard several times. I thought that it was going to be painfully of the early 2000s, you know, in a way where like, you know, I've talked about already. I, I was around then and there are not many things that I remember of the early 2000s that I'm fond of. I had no nostalgia for the early 2000s mm -hmm. um, at all. And uh, for the most part, this dodges many of those things, although I imagine that as it gets bigger and more complex and, and things like that. That won't always be the case, but um, I, I was pleasantly surprised that there was less of the the stuff I'm I'm not fond of from that time period showing up here. There's like not a single you know awful meme from that time. So good stuff. So until next time, uh, until we come up with a better sign off, great, great. <laughs>